The title of the message tonight is Finding Me in the Story of Thee. And Ben talked a lot about today about the anxiety that we all feel. And our hope here is to alleviate some of the anxiety that the world wants to put on your life. Namely, as Sadie launched us out so well, the two great existential questions of life. Who am I and why am I here? Everyone on the planet is dealing with those two questions. Who am I? And more importantly, why am I here? Why am I alive? What is the purpose of my life? To say it a different way, how do I find my story? How do I find my true self? And how do I find my purpose? I've been intrigued this year by some of the story libraries in the world. I don't know how Instagram decided I was going to be interested in this. And so photos and uh, posts about libraries started showing up in my feed. Don't you love that? Follow who you want, but Instagram will give you what it feels you need. And apparently, I need libraries. And so these crazy library posts started showing up. One of them is the Kuypers Library in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. I ended up in the neighborhood of this museum a few weeks ago. It's unbelievable. It's dedicated to books about art history, and it contains 400,000 books. And it made me think, this is where people are. We're looking to answer these two questions. Who am I and why am I here? And the culture may be encouraging us somewhere out there, there's a book and your story is in it. Somewhere, if you search and you look far enough and long enough, you'll find the story that helps you identify the story of you. And moreover, if you can't find a book that has a story that you feel represents the story of you, then just write your own book and write your own story of you. And I think a lot of us are asking that question. Is there a book that can tell my story? That's why we are so eager to be immersed in the story of the movie or the story of the, the, the cinema or the story of the symphony or the album. We want to get in a story somehow and hopefully find ourselves, identify ourselves in the story. So is, is there a book that has a story of me or I'm, I'm just supposed to create that book myself? I think that's where the culture is. I was listening to an interview with Tim Keller a few weeks ago. Tim Keller is an amazing author a pastor for many decades uh, of a church in New York City, uh, recently retired. 
He said that when he went to New York City, he came from a generation, which he sort of called his parents' generation. And he said for that generation, the meaning of life was to be good. That was the basic premise that people were operating in. I want to be a good person. He said, but when he arrived in New York, he realized that's not the culture of New York. People are not operating in a grid that says, I want to be good. See, before, if people thought, I want to be good, then the way that we would preach the gospel would be that you know you're not good enough, but praise God, Jesus has died in your place, and through grace, you can be forgiven. But it's interesting, Tim Keller said, when I arrived in New York City, people didn't want to hear that they weren't good enough. They were tired of people telling them that their lives weren't good enough, that they uh, had failed or fallen short, and they had basically bailed from the thinking of the future, the past generation, and he said they were more defined by this, the meaning of life is not to be good. The meaning of life is to discover your true self. And so he had to find out how to preach the gospel of Jesus to a whole new mindset, to a whole new mindset of people that were saying, if I search far enough down underneath what the world has said about me, I can find that inner child, my true self. But that's a lot of pressure. But interestingly, he said, now I think the culture shifted again. And now the culture has come to this conclusion. The meaning of life is not to be good. The meaning of life is not even to discover your true self. The meaning of life is to create yourself, to live your truth. And that sounds great. But the stakes are high because it could go good or it could go wrong in about seven billion ways. Example, maybe a neighbor says, I'm living out my truth in a construct in my mind that begins with divine design. I believe there is an originator and an original. I believe everything that is has been created. I believe I have been created. I don't think I just arrived. I think I was made by God on purpose. And for me to live out my truth is to find my meaning and my purpose in the heart and the mind of the originator who created me. And yet their neighbor is living out their truth. And they get along fine. But the neighbor says, I don't believe in any intelligent design. I believe we're all here by chance. I believe in random. I don't believe in anything was sequenced by an originator. I believe we all are just here and it is up to us to decide who we are, what we are, what we mean, and what we do 
with our lives. I do not believe in a higher power. I certainly do not believe in an almighty God. I absolutely do not believe that Jesus is God. And they're neighbors. And they're both living out their truth. And it seems great, except for this reality. Both of them can't be right. One of them can't be created and the other not created. One cannot be accidental and the other the product of design. One person breathing on earth cannot be here because God made them and then the person breathing right next to him be here simply by random chance. So they're both living out their truth, but they can't both be true. And at the end of the day, it sounds so liberating, but there's so much at stake and a lot of weight. A friend of mine told me recently about the recovery of one of the great Swedish warships called the Vasa. You can go to Stockholm and see it in the Vasa Museum. It's the most visited attraction, I think, in Stockholm. And the Vasa was discovered at the bottom of the ocean in 1957 and then painstakingly lifted to the surface. And when you go and see it now, it's pretty impressive, the restoration that's been done. The real story is how they got it all put back together again. The tragic story is why they needed to in the first place. In 1625, King Gustavus in Sweden was ruling the Baltic Sea. Sweden was a power on the seas in the entire region. But yet he's facing 11 different war fronts. And so he commissioned this fighting ship, the Vasa, so named after the royal family of Sweden, the House of Vasa. And he set in motion a plan. And in three years, they were gonna finish this ship. The problem was it was a rush job. There were no drawings, no construction plans. There was no modeling for a ship like this. It was all eyeballing and people were just figuring out as they went. And halfway through the process, the main shipbuilder died, new shipbuilder comes on the scene. So things are iffy, but it's impressive. A thousand oak trees were felled to build this ship. At the end of the day, it was a three-deck ship with two rows of cannons, 64 cannons in all. It had 700 unique carvings on the ship of animals and people and powerful leaders and all manner of things. It was gold-leafed in places and spectacular. They couldn't figure out exactly how it was going to work, and they put 121 tons of rocks in the bottom as ballast, and 
some people said we, we think we need more ballast, but for more ballast we'll have to change the design of the boat. And the king said, hey, I don't want to hear anything about changing the design of the boat. The boat's going to be the way it is. They continued to build the boat. They finished the boat. And on August 10th in 1628, they were ready for the maiden voyage. And so that afternoon, interestingly, all of the crew went to church, left church, came to the ship. There was guests for the maiden voyage, so there were women and children and other dignitaries, and they all boarded the ship. And from the waterfront of Stockholm at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, the Vasa set sail. They put up four of the ten sails, and there was a gentle breeze that day, and off the Vasa went. And within minutes, a gust of wind picked up. And when it did, the ship tilted to one side. This was not a surprise to the captain because before the ship was ready to be launched, he brought 30 crew on board. They ran to one side and then to the other, and then back to one side and back to the other. And as they did, the boat was unstable in the water. And in his mind, he already knew the challenges that were ahead. But no one wanted to stop the show. And so this gust now picks up in the sails. The Vasa tips to one side. Water begins to come into the ports before they conceal them where the guns are. And within minutes, the Vasa sinks. And 30 people are dead. The Vasa, in all its glory, sailed 4,000 feet. And then for 300 years, lie dormant in the muck in the Baltic Sea. I was reading about this ship and I thought the stakes are high. Because I can write a story I can even defy all sensibility, set sail, have a moment, and in 4,000 feet, my story can end up at the bottom of the sea. And so how can we alleviate stress? Who am I? And why am I here? How am I going to ever know truly who I am and what my purpose is in life? How can we alleviate this stress tonight? I believe it's through looking to Jesus. And that's why this entire time we've been in this stadium, everything we've done has been about setting our gaze on Jesus. Either he's worth it or he's a liar. Either he's Lord or a fool. There is no in-between with him. And so you have to write him off or write him in. And what we have wanted to encourage is let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And see, how did Jesus navigate who am I and why am I here? You say, well, he didn't have to. He was God. Not when he emptied himself of glory and took on 
humanity, he became the God man, and he dealt with everything you have dealt with and I have dealt with. He was tempted like we are tempted. He was tired like we are tired. He was frustrated like we get frustrated. He was wounded like we've been wounded. He was betrayed like we've been betrayed. He knew the highs and he knew the lows of life, and he had to navigate who am I and why am I here. And so I want you to notice with me in Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, it says this in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now returned from where? He returned from 40 days and nights in the wilderness being sharpened and tested and prepared for this ministry now that is unfolding. It says in news about Him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So understand what's happening now. Jesus is going public and all through Galilee, he's going into the various towns. And as he goes into these towns, he'll go into the synagogue on a Sabbath day. And in these moments, he's recognized already with authority to teach, with authority to speak, and he's given the opportunity to teach in the synagogue on a Sabbath in all of these towns throughout Galilee. On this particular day, he's come to his hometown, the town he grew up in as a little boy. And it's the Sabbath, as is custom now, he's in the synagogue, and it says in verse 17, he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're coming into the synagogue and the prophet Isaiah's scroll is being handed to you and the reading of the day is this text, what a place to land. But then Jesus flips the script. <clears throat> he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That means he's now ready to teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Jesus takes the Word of God. Now, just to back up theologically, Jesus is the Word of God. John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. This Logos, this Word is Jesus. He is the living Word. 
God speaking is Jesus. If you want to know what God has to say, Jesus, the eternal Word of God. But now the eternal Word of God is holding the living, breathing breath of God on a page. The Holy Scriptures in His hands opens it to Isaiah, reads this prophetic word, hands the scroll back to the attendant and says, guess what? This Scripture is about me. Today, in Nazareth, in the synagogue, in the town I grew up in as a little boy, this Scripture is coming to pass. It is being fulfilled. I am the one who the Spirit is on, anointed now to proclaim freedom and release and sight and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This teaching is about me. It didn't take them very long after they praised him to turn on Jesus and they ran him out of town. But here's how powerful it is to me. Jesus himself, when he was answering the question, who am I and what am I here, didn't look to the 400,000 volumes or the 200 million volumes in the British Library or the 1.7 million volumes in the Library of Congress. No, he said, I find the story of me in the story of thee. Right here in this book is where I find my story. Jesus finding his story in the story. And what he's saying to you tonight is, you don't need to look for a book that can tell you the story of you. And you definitely don't need to write one. The story of you is already in this story. Your story is in his story. You say, well, that sounds awfully confining that everybody here, <laughs> yay, all of our stories are in one book. That feels a little bit constricting, so why is that good news to me? for a few reasons. Number one, this story, his story, is the story that tells you who you truly are. In other words, your true identity is found in this story. It's even the same with Jesus. Look a few verses above in chapter 3. It says in verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So before Jesus 
makes the announcement, the revelation, this scripture today is fulfilled in your hearing. I, I am the one that Isaiah was speaking about. I am he. I am the anointed one of God to bring deliverance to the nations. Before he announces what his purpose is, God speaks over him what his identity is, and God doesn't want anybody to be mistaken. As he's baptized, the heavens are open, the Holy Spirit descends, and a voice comes from heaven. Everybody, this is my son whom I love, and in him and with him, I am so happy. Why is God happy? Jesus has not walked on water. He has not healed anybody. He has not turned water into wine. He has not fed 5,000. He's not cast out a demon, raised anybody who was dead, hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't done anything. It's beautiful to see that what God wanted him to know is, before you do one thing, I need you to know this thing. This is who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you, and I am pleased with you. Like, God, how are you pleased with me? I haven't even done anything yet, because I'm pleased with you because I made you. I'm pleased with you because you're created in my image. I'm pleased with you because I dreamed you up. I thought of you. I'm the one who designed everything about you. I'm the one who had the idea that there should be a you. I'm the one who knit you together and fashioned you to be uniquely you. I'm the one who brought you to life and gave you your first breath. I'm the one who saw you before the foundation of the world. I've been thinking about you and dreaming about you before there was even a cosmos for you to exist in. I am so happy with you. But, but I haven't done anything to, to earn that. That's the most beautiful thing Keller said in the interview. In this story, it's powerful because it's the story where identity is received, not achieved. This is my son whom I love, and in him I am pleased. Another time in Luke's gospel, there was a moment where Jesus was up on the mountain and the voice again came down from heaven. A second time, his followers heard it. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Your identity isn't something to achieve. Because who wants to carry the weight of having to live up to who I have decided that I will be? When God is already speaking over you, the originator is already speaking of you, and he's saying to you, I love you, you're my son, you're my daughter, you are mine, you are created, you are designed, you are valuable. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are son. In Christ, you are loved daughter. In Christ, you are free. In Christ, you have purpose. And hello, mind blower. To sit right next to Jackie Hill Perry's message today. In Christ, you are holy. 
not only am I holy, in Christ you are holy. That's who you are. The second reason why it's freeing to find the story of me in his story is because this story tells me what I'm here for. It really doesn't necessarily describe what you need to do with your life. Some, some of you will be a script writer. Some of you will be a stock trader. Some of you will be an educator. Some of you will be a biotechnician. Some of you will be an architect of some new technology that we don't know anything about. Some of you will raise a family and launch them into the world. Some of you will do multitudes of different kinds of things. The, the scripture really isn't saying, oh, this is exactly what you're going to do with your unique gifting and opportunity and aptitude in life. This is the story that tells you why you're going to do what you do with your unique gifting and opportunity and aptitude in life. This is the story that tells you what your ultimate purpose is. And knowing your identity and then knowing your purpose. To say, I'm created by God and I'm created for God, Colossians chapter 1. All things, Paul wrote, are created by him and for him. In other words, I'm valuable because I was made by God, but I have a purpose because I was made for God. My life isn't just for me. My life is to reflect the one who gave life to me. My life isn't for me to get glory from my gifts, but to use my gifts to give glory to the one who gave me the gifts. This life doesn't terminate with my name. This life ultimately terminates with the name that gave me the opportunity to even have a name. My life is for His glory. Everything is for His glory, but my life is included in that, made by God and for God. So I know who I am and why I'm here. I know how I got here, and I know what I'm supposed to do while I am here. I am the product of the invention of the creative mind of Almighty God, and with my life and my opportunity, the highs, the lows, the good, the bad, the joy, the pain, the sorrow, the life, the death, and everything in between, I want to be a megaphone that tells the world there's an awesome God in heaven, and He loves me, and He loves you. He created me and he created you. He is glorious in every way and his glory will outshine all of time and eternity. I have a purpose for my life. The third reason why it's good news to find the story of me in, in this story is because this story blows away any story you could write for yourself. I know it's hard to imagine because we're watching people create amazing stories. People are changing technology, changing our future, blowing our minds, reshaping paradigms left and right. I mean, it's not weird to think that people are going to colonize Mars. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh yeah, we're going to do that. There's some big stories out there. But what I want to promise you tonight is that if you come to the realization that the story of me is in this story, a story that already has a leading character who is not me, but I get to play a, a role in the story 
of the leading character. Therefore, I get to be in on that size glory. Jesus said to his followers, they promised them in Colossians, and when I appear, you will appear with me in glory. In other words, you, you'll be on stage with me. That's what you're buying into. Your little part, your, your few moments, your lap, that's going to be part of glory. And it's going to be bigger. What I have for you is going to be bigger. Dream dreams. I hope you're dreaming them tonight. Make plans. But I promise you right now, God is laughing at your plans. You're like, oh, no, 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 I got these big plans, Louis. We're going to, I'm going to find this dude, and we're going to do this together, and we're going to make a mark on history, and it's epic, bro. God is laughing at your dreams tonight. Not, not in a way of trying to make fun of you, just because he can. He sees it all. I remember standing at the altar with Shelly. We were young, we didn't know a lot, but we loved Jesus. And I remember standing there, we were holding hands, facing the people. For some crazy reason, we turned it all around where we were looking at the people and not at the back of the room. And, and our hands were shaking. And the only thing we really knew was that our lives are going to count for Jesus. The end. Like, well, what were your plans? We had zero plans. I was in grad school. She just graduated. We, we had zero money. We had zero family structure. We, we, we had no, is it A or B or C? We, we were just two kids. Just going, Jesus, I love you more than I love her. And her going, I love you, Jesus, more than I love him. And the thing we got going for us is that we both love Jesus more than we love each other. And we want our life on earth to count for Jesus. We found ourselves starting a little Bible study on the campus of Baylor University in, in my apartment. Less than 10 people. Baylor is a great school, one of the greatest schools in the world. It's the largest Baptist school in the world. And at this time, and I can't really speak for the exact pulse of this moment, but at this time, it was a big religious veneer that sort of overshadowed true Jesus guts and glory. And a handful of students met in this apartment and said, God, we want you to bring a revival to this campus and awaken hearts and eyes to Jesus. Within a few years, over 10% of the campus population were coming to a Monday night gathering. 1,500, 1,600, 1,800 of the 10,000 students on the campus were showing up on a Monday night. There was no free food. There was no gimmicks. There was no games. It was just worship God, open the word, hear from God. Let's go back to the campus and tell them how good God is. And for 10 years, that was our life. There was no big 
big glory in it except him. There was no big, there was no social media in that era. There was, there was no visibility. It was just us on a campus, loving students, praying for students, meeting students, discipling students, pouring into students, gathering students, setting their hearts hopefully on fire for a bigger purpose for their life. But most of this time, to speed up the story, most of this time, my dad is disabled here in Atlanta. Just a few years into our marriage, my dad overnight became disabled, a brain virus. Never went to work again, never drove a car again, never dressed himself again, never walked by himself again. Had 24-hour care, round the clock with my mom taking care of him. This brilliant artist, this genius communicator, now can't see from here over, doesn't know if it's morning or night, seven years. And we're saying the whole time to the Lord, God, please free us to go home and help mom with dad. And every time God would say with absolute clarity, I got your mom and dad, you stay at your post. We'd be like, oh, okay, we're here. Year would go by, God, please stay at your post. Year would go by, stay at your post. Year would go by, stay at your post. Finally, on one of the God, please, God said, you can go. It's time for you to go. It was November. I thought, man, May, we're out. We transition our team. May came, we're off from Texas back here to Atlanta. No job, no purpose, no ministry other than we're gonna help my mom take care of my dad. You know, May 20, April 28th of 1995, on a Monday night, the last Monday night of our 10 years of gathering students at Baylor, on that Monday night, April 28th, 1995, my dad had a heart attack and died about two miles from here. And we are already jettisoned. And we were like, what happened? I was like, are you kidding me? When you said November go, you meant November go. When you said it's time, you meant it's time now. Not man's time in May, but God's time is right now. And I just missed the last six months of my dad's life. Are you kidding me, God? And now we're here. We've said goodbye to the past. We have no reason to be here. We have no job. We have no purpose. We, it's cloudy. It's foggy. We don't know what's going on, God. How did this all come down to this? And a few months later, on an airplane, I had a moment that I cannot explain fully. And I got transported out of seat 23C. And I saw something. And God said, that's what you're about to be a part of. I needed somebody who's available, and I'm choosing you. Are you in? It's like, what is it? I'll show you. What do you call it? I'll show you. How do you do it? I'll show you. Where, where, where's it going to go? I'll show you. Who's going with us? I'll show you. And I'm standing here right now looking 20 some odd years later at the picture that I had sitting on that plane. And in between 
with my dad's first brain surgery, second brain surgery, accompanying stroke, falling and breaking his back, falling and breaking his hip, crying through the night, multiple nights with me at his bedside, in despair because he didn't have Jesus, lashing out at me and, and the world because he'd been abandoned when he was a child by his own parents, telling me what I'd never heard in my whole life, that he'd felt unloved and unwanted by everybody in his life. And me walking with him and saying, Dad, but I love you. Dad, I'm not the father, I'm the son, but from the son coming up to the dad, I'm telling you, you are amazing, Dad. I love you. You are awesome. And then, just like that, he's gone. Maybe you've had some bits in your story like that. And you're like, Louis, if God's got me in his story, his story's all jacked up. No, his story's not jacked up. The world is jacked up. But his story is so powerful that it can take the jacked up parts of our stories and weave them into a phenomenal outcome in his story. So I'm telling you, his story is bigger and better than whatever you're thinking. So you can alleviate the anxiety tonight. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Don't need to know. I know who I am. I'm created by God, and I know why I'm here. I'm created for God. So I'm going to live in the reality of that today. I am valuable, loved son, daughter in Christ of God, and I am here for a purpose, which is to give glory to God. So I'm going to do that in the moment I'm in, with the opportunity I have, with the gifts and the aptitude that I have. I'm going to live in my identity and with purpose. That's all you need. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and nights. The enemy comes. And what does he say? If you're the son of God, turn the stones into bread. Went right at his identity. But Jesus said, oh, I know who I am and I know what my purpose is. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you this, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Thank you very much. Later, he takes him up to the temple in Jerusalem and says, if you're the son of God, I heard a, a voice came from heaven and spoke about you that this is my son whom I love. Oh, if you are, then jump off and the angels will save you. He said, oh, I know who I am. And I know what I'm here to do. And you know what God's word says? Don't put God to the test. Even the criminal hanging next to Jesus said, if you're really the son of God, do something. Jesus was like, oh, I, I know who I am. But with that, I know why I am. And my purpose was to come to this cross from the start.
And in the story of God, the most horrific day on earth is the day that we call good. Because God is greater than whatever's trying to hijack your story or jack up your story. If you say, God, I find me in the story of thee, I promise you he will redeem whatever is in your story. It happened a few years ago in a stadium that was right next to this stadium called the Georgia Dome. And I told this story for many years, but then it happened again tonight. From just a guy and a girl saying, Jesus, we want our lives to count for you. That's all we know. That's all we have. That that's the plan. Right now, I'm standing at the 50-yard line in a football stadium with the amazing privilege of, of serving you. 55,000 of you. Do you think that guy sitting in 23C had any comprehension of that? I was just on my way to Dallas to speak at a youth conference. And so I can't explain everything that happened to my dad. I can't explain why he went through all the suffering. I can't explain everything our family endured. I can't explain any of that. I don't have answers. God hasn't given me the download on all of that. But I, I do know this. On Thursday night, there was a football game in this stadium. I took a picture of it. I was watching it at home between Michigan State and Pitt in the Peach Bowl. That's my TV. The game ended and it, somewhere after midnight, they released this stadium to our team. And the first thing our team did was to put this covering on the field, especially on this end where the stage needed to be built. And so somewhere around 4 a.m., someone on our team took this photo, because obviously there's no time to get all the painted stuff off the field. And then somewhere a few hours later, the terraplasts began to come down. And it worked its way from this end to that end. And so as it came across, the logo that was at midfield ends up being underneath where I'm standing. It's a beloved logo because the sponsor of the Peach Bowl is Chick-fil-A. And so beneath my feet right now is the Chick-fil-A logo. Right now, it's right there. Maybe right there. You're like, that's cool. No, it's way more powerful than that because my dad was a graphic designer and my dad created the Chick-fil-A logo in 1964. I am standing on top 
of my dad's logo in the middle of a football stadium by chance, by random circumstance, by some coincidence, or is it God saying to me, coming up these stairs, Louis, I just want to remind you again that you are my son whom I love, and I am proud of you. I am pleased with you, son. You go, and you preach, and you lead, and you shepherd, and you serve, and I can't answer all the questions, but I'm going to let you stand on the visual reality that I can turn stories around, and what I am dreaming for your life blows away everything you're dreaming. You are not going to be limited by finding your story in the story. This story is going to blow your mind. And then lastly, why is it good news to find your story and his story, to find me in the story of thee? Because it puts you in the story with the very best ending of all the stories. This story ends in triumph. In this story, the darkness is over. In this story, death dies. In this story, there is an eternity of light and life. In this story, there is a victor and a champion who has no rival and has no equal. In this story, we all may fail, but the king of this story, he will prevail. And he is inviting you. He's inviting you. He's already written you in. Chose you before the foundation of the world. Loved you in Christ before you were born. Already saw all the days of your life. Numbered them all. He's already written you in. You already are a part of the plan. Are you willing tonight to say, I, I, I don't need to search any further. I'm the product of an originator. And my purpose is found in Him.